Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, as always, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ilya Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to turn today to some of the various challenges and dangers uh, roiling on the international stage. Probably have to start with the controversy of the week. These new revelations now confirmed by Donald Trump Jr. himself through the release of the email chain that he, along with Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort, met with a woman who was supposedly representing the Russian government and offering what she claimed was compromising information on Hillary Clinton and Trump critics, of course, seizing on this as evidence of nefarious connections between the Trump team and Russia. How much of a cause for concern here for you, Victor? Oh, it reminds me of Donald Nixon or Billy Carter or Roger Clinton. Um, I think that all presidential relatives do stupid things. So when somebody calls you and says he has dirt, even if they're from a foreign country, or especially if from a foreign country, you should say no, and, and Trump didn't. But unless they prove that there was actually information exchanged and there were money paid, I think it's going to go down as part of the great Russian collusion hoax. But remember, that while we're talking about this, Troy, uh, we've got Vladimir Putin as sort of a puppet master. He's got this string. He's had the last five months of the collusion string. He's got Samantha Power, John Brennan, Susan Rice, uh, excuse me, uh, Susan Rice, all under subpoena for the surveilling collusion on masking, excuse me, not collusion, on masking and leaking narrative. Today we had the House, I think it was Science Committee, suggesting that there were green groups that got Russian money uh, to oppose fracking, which would have been in Russia's interest. And then this is all amid a landscape of Bill Clinton's fees, Hillary Clinton and the uranium deal, the, the Ukrainian donations of the foundation. So I think Putin does all this. Some of it's fake. We have the Steele dossier um, that the opposition research to Trump bought. And I think it's just a pattern where we uh, sort of go mad or go crazy over every little pinprick that Putin does. And the result is we're, we're, we're consumed in chaotic frenzy. And that's what Russia wants. So this story emerges in the aftermath of a meeting between President Trump and Vladimir Putin at the G20 summit. The upshot there, you have a ceasefire in part of Syria, uh, apparently Trump pressing Putin on whether Russia interfered in the election, and a somewhat strange proposal to collaborate with Russia on a cybersecurity program. The president ended up walking that back the same day he announced it after it got some pretty widespread yeah. criticism from both sides. But Victor, even amongst those who – don't believe there's a full-on conspiracy between the Trump administration and Russia. There are those who will say that there's still signs that maybe the president is a little too optimistic, maybe a little too credulous where our relationship with Moscow is concerned. What's your take on that situation? I think he is, but my his my take is historically. Remember when Reagan came back and he said, "I, uh, I think George Shultz was aghast. He he came out of a meeting and said, I, "I want Gorbachev and I to eliminate all nuclear weapons," and people thought, "Wow." We have all sorts of nuclear commitments to third-party powers that could uh, create nuclear weapons that don't, but rely on our deterrent nuclear umbrella. And what is Reagan doing? He's going to negotiate all that away. And then he – I think it was 24 hours. He said, no, no. And then people – you know, he said bombing of Russia starts, ha, 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 in 10 minutes. And we do th – presidents do things like that. Trump, because he's had no prior military or political experience, probably does it more frequently. But – 
I always look for the irony in things. I think that it does create within limits a sense abroad that he's unpredictable and unpredictability is not all bad. So especially that he has people of the caliber of McMaster and Mattis and Kelly and Tillerson that that sort of play bad cop, good cop to foreign leaders. How much stock do you put in this ceasefire in Syria? It's about five days old as we're talking. What would it take to make something like that work? Well, the ultimate problem there is that um, we have to decide whether the Assad government can transit is acceptable to stay in power or it could be transitioned out of power or it has to immediately step down from power. And we can't decide on that. And then we have to decide to what degree Russia will be persuaded that an Iranian nuclear program that leads to a bomb is not in its interest. And right now it's in Russia's interest to, to, to have Iran get a bomb because it'll be pointed at us, not them. And it's in their interest to keep Assad under every circumstance. So this is, will be temporary until we can change that existential circumstances and, and say, here's what's in your interest, not what we think's your interest, but here actually is what is in your interest. And that's not going to happen in, until we have a carrot and stick approach where we make things uncomfortable with tougher sanctions against Putin or we have some type of uh, carrot that he can see is in in his advantage. But uh, otherwise, it's just going to be like an Israeli-Palestinian truce. What's your prescription for that question that you you raised about Syria? I mean, nobody in the American context is really a fan of Bashar al-Assad. But the the argument amongst those who would be comfortable or at least reconcilable to keeping him is, yeah, he's bad. The situation is pretty dire, but probably a better situation than what we'd get if he was gone, where you could have chaos unleashed. Where, where do you come down on that question? Well, the answer to that question is that we – we did this with Saddam Hussein at the time we thought he was worse than Assad. And I think it would have eventually worked, but we pulled out and Syria is a, uh, Iraq's a mess. And then I thought Gaddafi was a monster in rehab, but we bombed him out. And now Libya is a mess. So whatever one's views were on that, they have those two examples that suggest maybe that you have a strong man that you can transition out of. And there's not the same urgency, although the strong man gassed his own people as Saddam did. And then we have these beheaders and medieval torturers like ISIS. So uh, I think the point is that if the entire international community could work with Russia, then they could trend. It could say within a year he's got to leave and that would give us time to get some type of coalition government. But I don't think that's going to happen now because it's in the Iranian interest to have a land route all the way from the Mediterranean up and through uh, Syria and Iraq to Iran. And they're so close to achieving that that. It's sort of like uh, Mosul, sort of like Berlin, 1945. As soon as the city was taken, there was no reason any longer for anybody to cooperate. And the Cold War started almost immediately. So as soon as Mosul falls and as soon as ISIS is vanquished, then we're going to find ourselves in a new war with the Iran-Hezbollah uh, faction. And we're going to be back in the, whatever the Syrian Free Army is and the Kurds. But it's going to start a new cycle. Uh, what so about what about ISIS itself? Because as you suggested there, the weekend before we're recording this, the the Iraqi army basically takes back Mosul from ISIS. Raqqa in Syria looks like it's coming pretty close behind. More reports now that Baghdadi, the ISIS leader, probably did. On the ISIS front, when's it time to celebrate? How do, how do we think about the fight ahead if all three of those things turn out to have happened? 
Yeah, I, it depends on to what to de- what degree Iraq and Syria are stable, and there's not some Anbar outland where they can reconstitute as they did when we defeated we defeated Al Qaeda in Anbar province, and then we had a peacekeeping force, and they were pretty much moribund. In fact, as we remember, Barack Obama said he was leaving a secure and, and self-reliant Iraq, and then it was reformulated as ISIS. That'll happen again. It might not be called ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but it will be called something, unless there's some type of force to prohibit that from happening. And that'll have to be, at some point in our interest, an American-backed Kurdish-Iraqi-Syrian-free army coalition to stop that. And that's where the tension's going to be, because that's not in the interest of Iran or Russia or Assad, obviously. So I don't see how that thing is going. There's going to be a winner and loser. There's not going to be a, a peace based on uh, uh, the situation on the ground. It's, just, it's going to have to resolve one way or the other. Under Obama, I think everybody understood that or our heart wasn't in it. And we had ceded that to Russia and Iran and Hezbollah. And under Trump and Mattis and McMaster, I think they, there's a renewed effort to widen the rules of engagement, maybe we can regain momentum. But that doesn't mean we're going to defeat not only ISIS, but the enemy of our enemy, which is now our friend, but shortly will be our enemy. So I don't think that the American people have a stomach for it to get in a ground war with Hezbollah and Assad and the Iranians once ISIS is liquidated. I will move you over to Asia now. More and more menacing Missile launches from North Korea looks like by the president's own admission, we're not getting any terribly useful assistance out of China in defusing this problem. So, Victor, the two cleanest scenarios here are also probably the two least appetizing, which is A, the North continues apace with its weapons development or B, we go to war. Is there a course somewhere in the middle that you think would both be effective and achievable? Yeah, it, but we have to stop mirror imaging China. We always say it's not in China's interest, blah, 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 to have an unstable North Korea or not to have a Kim Jong-un out of control. It is in their interest. They find it a, a useful distraction for the United States. It ties down our, our assets and our attention. So what we need to do is to remind China in a series of calibrated steps that at some point along that trajectory, it's not in their interest anymore to supply the cash, capital, and expertise that makes these bombs possible in North Korea. And that would be, we can start by barring Chinese students from American universities. We could go escalate a little bit by barring high officials of the Chinese government from coming to the United States. We could ratchet it up with it for trade sanctions. We could ratchet it up a little bit further by suggesting that uh, maybe Japan will be free if they choose to go nuclear. Maybe Taiwan may uh, may be free. Maybe South Korea. And at some point along that trajectory, we would hope, however dangerous it is, that China would say, okay, we don't want that. Because after all, if South Korea were using American expertise and capital and sending guided missiles near China and brag that it had nuclear weapons and would like to blow up China, China wouldn't tolerate that one minute. Right. Um, Victor, I'll end you on a slightly different note. I'm stretching the foreign policy theme here some, but I think this is worth it. While President Trump was in Europe last week, he gives a speech in Poland, very well written, generally pretty well received, sort of a a macro defense of Western civilization. 
Um, one person alarmed by it, Peter Beinert, writing in The Atlantic, who said, I'm quoting here, the most shocking sentence in Trump's speech, perhaps the most shocking sentence in any presidential speech delivered on foreign soil in my lifetime, was his claim that, this is quoting Trump, the fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. And then Biner goes on to say in the next paragraph, Trump's sentence only makes sense as a statement of racial and religious paranoia. The South and East only threaten the West's survival if you see non-white, non-Christian immigrants as invaders. They only threaten the West's survival if by West you mean white Christian hegemony. Victor, is that the right way to think about the West? No, with all due respect, that's that's articulated by somebody who's absolutely ignorant of the literature, history, culture, economics, social structure and foundation of Western culture. The, what makes the West unique is that what starts off as a European uh, phenomenon by its very intent and by its very nature is in- inclusive. And so now, 2,500 years later, Mr. Beinart should ask himself why somebody in Libya or Syria would rather live with non-Muslims in the United States or Europe than they would with Muslims in their own environs. And why does he think that there's no Christian churches in Riyadh, but there's plenty of mosques in the West, including my hometown of Fresno? And it's because that the logic of Western civilization are values, and it's not race or particular religion, although it's it was created by European Judeo-Christian civilization, the nexus of Athens and Jerusalem and Rome. But it's uh, he should know by now that if he looks at the makeup, say, of the United States, it's the only multiracial country in the world. And that even countries that are somewhat westernized, uh, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, cannot go full western because to do so would require them to be multiracial, and they won't do it. We're the only country in the world to do that. And then to suggest that we're uniquely racist is a sign of, you know, a sign of an ignoramus. It's historically ignorant. And it's just sort of one of those catchwords that you just say racism or Christian chauvinism, whatever it is, and then you that excuses you from deep, serious logic and, and rationale. So what Trump was saying was that the system of free market capitalism, religious tolerance, personal freedom, constitutional government, uh, rationalism, self-critique, religious tolerance, all of that is opposed to tribalism, parochialism, religious intolerance, all of that. And it's being threatened because it's sheer success, the capital that it creates, the material bounty that creates, the personal freedom that it creates can result in decadence and license. And then people either don't have children or they're slaves to their appetites, or they can be like Peter Barnard and say there's no absolute truth, it's just a relativist makeup. Mm-hmm. And then the result of it is that we don't believe in the system that everybody wants to join, including the people that he seems to champion. All right. Thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in to the Classicist Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, stop by Defining Ideas at Hoover.org to read more of Victor's commentary. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.